system to keep that macroarthropod and the predatory nematodes in control. And then what's the, what's the top of this food web? It's us as human beings. It's just that we've been falling down on our job. We've been messing up because we're arrogant. We think we know better than Mother Nature. Poor little Mother Nature. Got to help her out. Yeah. Instead, not understanding what we're doing, we've been destroying the system, which means you've got to work really hard in order to grow your plants, and we're not making quality plants. So we need to get this system back into the soil so that nutrient cycling can happen. We, can, we don't have to worry about diseases and pests at all whatsoever if we get the, this food web established around the root system and on the above ground part of your plant. The same kind of protection is going to be happening above ground as below. When a disease-causing spore floats along, lands on the root system or lands on your above ground, your leaves, your flowers, your um, seed, there is a layer of protective organism that a spore is never going to germinate because it never gets the food it needs in order to germinate. If perchance it did germinate somehow, it's not going to be able to get its um, disease-causing member to move through, to, it can't get through that protective wall. Something's going to compete with it. Something is going to use its enzymes to chew it up. Or we've got a predator that's going to come along and eat that disease-causing organism long before it ever gets even close to the tissues of your plant. So if you have problems with diseases, if you've got insect pests, Mother Nature is going to tell you you don't have the protective layer. You don't have the nutrients in this plant to allow it to grow in a normal fashion. So if you want flavor and taste, you better get this biology back into the soil. So suppressing diseases, retaining nutrients, keeping them in the soil, nothing leaches anymore. We don't have runoff. We don't have erosion. The nutrients are converted at the rate that the plant requires. Let the plant be in control of its own life. These are decomposed toxins. So if your soil goes anaerobic, if compaction happens, you need to get the biology back into that compaction zone to rebuild that structure and prevent oxygen from being excluded from some part of your soil. If you've got compaction, if you've got anaerobic conditions in your soil, then it's not soil anymore because you've lost the organisms and probably the organic matter that you need. So we've got to deal with those toxins that have been produced under anaerobic conditions. And that's another major function of these aerobic organisms is to build structure. The bacteria make massive amounts of glues around their bodies which means they're going to glue themselves to surfaces, grab those surfaces, hold them, and um, keep them in, in place, building that structure around that bacterium so it's protected from things that want, want to eat it. Come along with their strands and pull microaggregates together into macroaggregates. And as these things are pulled together, think about the space that's left. Now we have airways and hallways and tunnels and passages that allow water to move normally through your soil. So infiltration occurs 
you fill up the pores about 50% so that you've got plenty of water stored in that soil. Organic matter chewed, you know, the dead plant materials chewed on by the bacteria and fungi, the decomposers, glued together, held in place by the bacterial glues, the fungal strands. Hold water against the flow of gravity so that when your roots grow down into the soil, and of course the roots have to have space. They have to have the airways, the passageways, the hallways, the tunnels to allow those roots to grow easily and deeply into your soil. Now, a lot of people think that um, our crop plants only put their root systems down a couple of inches and that's it. And then those roots grow sideways. And when the roots grow sideways, they start com competing with, combating neighbor's roots. This is not normal. This is not natural. Those root systems should be going straight down. And so make certain you have no compaction in your soil. What's the easiest way to tell if you've got compaction or not? You push a metal rod through your soil, pounds of pressure. That's a compaction layer that most roots of most plants cannot push their way through. And if those roots do try to push their way through, they're going to be met by very toxic chemicals that are only produced under anaerobic conditions. There's a whole herd of, of organic acid, drop the soil pH very low, drop the soil pH less than 5.5. That's a message from Mother Nature that there's something terribly wrong. This is not soil, it's dirt. Fix the dirt. Get the biology back into the soil to build that structure so your roots can go down as deep as they possibly can go. How deep does cannabis go? How far down can we find the root systems of the cannabis in the first growing season? Very easily, those root systems can be going down 10, 12 feet. Not inches, feet. And if those root systems are down that deep, you don't have to irrigate because those root systems are finding the water that was stored in that soil back at snowmelt or back with the spring rains. If you've got a compaction layer in your soil, your water can't infiltrate. It can't go down and be stored in your soil where your root systems are going to be able to access it. Compaction layer means that when the water hits that compaction layer, that water's now going to run downhill and not be stored. And it's going to pull a lot of your soil with it as it goes. So now your roots can't grow deep. They can't get the summer water. You're going to have to try to figure out how much water does your plant require every day. And it's going to cost you money. So we need to get this biology back into the soil. Be able to stop irrigating. Stop spending your money on water. Stop spending your money on inorganic fertilizers and pesticides and weedicides. Because if we get the balances of these organisms proper into your soil, weeds don't grow. Weeds require strictly nitrates to promote their growth. They only take up nitrate, maybe nitrate and a small amount of ammonium. What we have to do is get that ammonium component back into the soil and so when we're dealing with cannabis, we want around just about the same amount of nitrate in the soil as ammonium. And then weeds are going to be outcompeted by your crop plants. Your crop plants are going to be getting all the nutrients it needs. 
not the weeds are not winning anymore. So your crop is the healthy organism in the system. So I'd like to quickly go through what the um, morphology. I don't. I may be running over. Let me know when I'm supposed to stop. You're good. You have another uh, 45 minutes. But another we'll 45 some, minutes. Yeah, we'll Yay. get some Q and A in there. We can do this. Okay. Um, so let's go over what these organisms look like. So when I'm talking about bacteria, you took a little bit of your soil. Um, let's say you um, take a teaspoon of your soil, and now you're going to mix four teaspoons worth of water in with that soil, and you're going to shake that so you break up all the water-stable aggregates. And you took a drop of that mix of your soil, or what you think is your soil. Maybe it's your dirt. Um, very rapid. So you're going to mix a teaspoon of your soil with four teaspoons worth of water. Please make sure clean water, make sure that it doesn't have chlorine or chloramine in it. Uh, because guess what we put chlorine and chloramine in the water to do? Yeah, to kill the organisms that would grow on the pipes on the way to your house. So that's what the chlorine and chloramine is in your water for. You've got to neutralize that before you add it to soil, before you put um, that water into a place that you want to have microorganisms growing. So make certain that it's not chlorinated and it doesn't have chloramine in it. Um, in some of the other classes, we go through how you do that very simply, easily. You can make your own, human, your own uh, neutralizer. You don't have to buy it from the store. Um, it's called compost. So um, let's see, where was I? So you do that dilution. Now you're going to take one drop. So you get an eyedropper, you cut one drop um, on the slide, put a cover slip on the slide, and then use a shadowing microscope. If you know where to order a shadowing microscope, go to our website. All of the information is up on the website. Um, and we have classes, online classes that you can take to you how to use that microscope. It usually takes us about half a day to teach people how to use the microscope. And then we go through pictures of these organisms with you so you can identify them for yourself. It's best if you start doing this microscope work. This is the measurement that tells you whether you have healthy soil or not. Um, so easy, simple to do these um, assays, so simple to you, um, do it yourself. And then you're not sending something off to a laboratory and wondering if the U.S. mail or UPS or FedEx have managed to forget where the address is that you were sending it to. Um, take a week or two for the sample to arrive. You learn how to use the microscope yourself because you know what bacteria look like. So let's go into this. This picture up at the top, it says, you know, um, bacteria, um, aggregates, roots, cilia. So these things are in this picture. You know, before we get started here, before I tell you what these are in this picture, can you pick these things out? Do you already have enough of a background that you can be doing some of this uh, identification of these organisms? So if this was your first field of view that you looked at with your sample, should you be patting yourself on the back because we've got some really good organisms in here? 
or should your heart be sinking down into your boot? Oh, no. Oh, this is bad news. So, where are the bacteria in these, these kinds of um, preparations? You would have to go to a much higher um, uh, magnification. What's the magnification on this? Over in the bottom right-hand side, you can see this is 400x total magnification. In reality, these organisms are 400 times smaller. So yes, it takes a microscope to see them. So those are cocci, the little round back. Um, and, and if, if um, Leighton, if you wanted to go and, and point to these as I'm talking about this, if you point out and just point to where I'm talking, that might help people in the room. So that little aggregate that's over um, midfield on the left-hand side, halfway between the edge of the slide and the middle of the slide, that's a micro aggregate. Now you can see some rod-shaped strands in there, very short, very narrow, round, or rods. When we're looking at these different bacteria, notice that we basically just have two kinds of morphology. There's the big round bacteria and there are the rod-shaped bacteria. And when you're only seeing two kinds of bacteria, your heart should kind of be going, oh no, things are not good in here. In the past, this has been good because we've got that micro aggregate. There's other big macro aggregates um, over on the left-hand side and over on the right-hand side. So in the past, things have been good, but there's something out of whack in here now because we don't have the diversity of the bacteria that we should be seeing. We'll see other pictures here in a few minutes and you'll be able to see what I mean. This is bad news in here. Now, that big strand that's going across the bottom half of the field, that's a root. You can see lots of different cells within that root. So multicellular, you know that that's not a fungus. Fungi are single strands. Um, but most root systems, the root itself ought to be uniform diameter all the way along, except down at the tip. So as you look along that root, things are going pretty well. If we start in the lower left-hand side and you go along, it's pretty well uniform diameter all the way along that until, uh-oh, see the big divot that's been taken out of the side of the root? What's caused that? That is not healthy. That is a very bad sign. It could have been a microarthropod taking a bite, so um, a disease-causing or a, a, a you know a bad guy microarthropod that comes along and eats roots. Um, but look at that real dark black blotch right at the bottom of that bite that's been taken out of that root system. That's a fungal disease. We're looking at some fusarium. And that is a disease-causing fungus that, if left unchecked, is going to take out your plants. So probably if we looked at other roots from this particular plant, we would assign, see more signs of attack. But that tells us that this root system no longer has that protective bacterial and fungal castle wall around it. It's naked. It's hanging out there. And it's trying not to be noticed by diseases and pests and problem organisms, but it's been found. 
if you have this occurring on your plant, you want to, as quickly as possible, inject into the soil the proper biology around these root systems. You can get the competitors, the inhibitors, and the uh, consumers back into the soil, and you can repair this damage if you're fast enough about it. If you are waiting for the above ground part of the plant to tell you something very bad is going on in the root system, your plant is dead before you know what's going on. So you, you want to be using this microscope as a way to tell you about the health in the soil. Do you have the organisms or not? And so some of these kinds of things I'm pointing out, you want to be aware of. So you can see the messages that nature is trying to sell, send you and you can get the message soon enough that you can do something about it. So in the past, things have been healthy, but right now we've got two indicators of uh-oh. And then of course, the third indicator in here is the ciliate. So that great big kind of oblong grayish um, structure, that's a ciliate. If we were watching a vet, ciliate would be moving around. It would be zooming and eating bacteria, moving very rapidly on those uh, little cilia that are coming out of its body. So that characteristic that all ciliates have to have cilia on part or all of the body. You can see inside the ciliate all the bacteria that it has consumed. So a ciliate eats about 10,000 um, bacteria a day. It can't stay alive without that massive amount of bacteria, but the bacteria are typically growing very, very well um, in soil, lots of foods, lots of organic matter, especially around the root system. So that ciliate only occurs, it only can be competitive when oxygen has dropped below six parts per million and you are now in a reduced oxygen and anaerobic environment. Well, anaerobic means that fusarium that will build structure, that will attack and compete with and consume and inhibit these bad guys. Your soil isn't soil, it's dirt. So get the biology back into that system. So moving on, and um, I'm assuming that if there's any you know, glaring questions that people just, you know, answering, you know, uh, that um, Joshua or Leighton or Steve would um, call on them and uh, get their question answered. If not, I will continue. So this picture, we've got fungi in here. Can you see, can you see those strands of fungi? What are the criteria for beneficial fungi versus bad guy fungi? Most of the good guys, all of the good guys in this picture, cannot grow in plate cultures. Can We don't have, we have no knowledge of how to grow these beneficial fungi in laboratory media. So we've missed them. When people rely on plate counts or when they rely on respiration to measure fungi in the soil, they're missing 99.9999999999% of the fungi that are actually present in the soil. So you have to use a microscope or you have to do DNA analysis. 
with your microscope, it's, you know, those microscopes cost about $300. Don't buy the camera on those microscopes from the microscope company. They are worthless. Um, use your cell phone. Uh, much higher resolution, uh, much easier to use, and uh, you, you're going to be buying a cell phone anyway, your smartphones. Um, so why invest in another camera when you've got a better one? So just hold your um, cell phone up to your eyepieces. It'll take a little bit of steady hand or maybe you buy a holder so that you can always put your cell phone exactly into place and take a picture of what you're looking at. If you don't know what you're looking at, you send the picture to us and we'll identify it for you. We do ask that you take the microscope class first though, because um, you're with this talk, you're only getting a very small amount. I mean, out the characteristics, so you could at least get a good idea of whether it's a fungus or something else that you're looking at. So looking at this fungus, so taking the one strand that begins just close to the left-hand side, and upper left-hand side, and looking at that link, fungal uniform diameter all the way along. So that strand is uniform. Now you get to that right-hand side of the picture, see how that strand is now out of focus? You're gonna have to use your fine focus on your microscope and focus along on the rest of that fungal hypha to make that decision that it is uniform diameter all the way along. Notice the branch that's coming off of that strand in that upper left-hand side. And notice that the diameter of the branch is different from the first strand that we look at. And that's fine. As long as along the strand, it's uniform diameter all along that strand. So then we know that that's really truly a fungus. Um, well, the next thing we wanna look at is it, is it colored or not? And it doesn't really matter which color, as long as it's a different color than the background. Look at the background in this picture. Look at the color of the fungal hyphae. And yes, this is a colored fungus. So most likely a good guy. When we're dealing with bad guys, they are clear, they're colorless, they're transparent. So one of the characteristics that we're gonna use to rank the fungi in your sample determine whether they're most likely good or whether they're most likely bad. So these nice colored fungal hyphae uh, point in their favor. They're probably good guys. Now we wanna look at the width of this strand. Beneficial fungal hyphae are typically three micrometers or wider. Now, there's some exceptions, but they're rare. So, you know, most of the time you're gonna be making the correct assessment. How do you determine the diameter of this fungal hypha? Well, you're, there's a built-in scale for you because we know that the smallest bacteria have a diameter of one micrometer. They're usually cocci, they're usually little round guys. So where in this picture can you find a single small bacteria? You look at most of this clear grainy material, all those little grainy bits, those are bacteria but you can't pick them out. These aggregates are really well-formed. There's lots of them, so this is a really nice, well-structured compost. Yeah, this is 
really good looking. But where's the bacterium that we can find to use as our scale? Look in the upper right hand corner and you can see a lot of little individual bacteria. Look at how many different sizes and shapes there are. There's short fat um, bacteria, there's round, there's really small round bacteria, there's medium sized round bacteria, there's some larger round bacteria and just lots of different sizes and shape. Yes, good diversity. That's what we wanna see. So, so far I am really happy with this sample because things are looking really good. So find your smallest bacterium up in that left hand, right hand corner. And now how many of those bacteria, bacteria that size, how many of them can you line up across that fungal hypha? So just think about, you know, the one little dot, two little dots, three little dots, three and a half. We have a fungal hypha, three and a half, maybe four, you know, close enough. So do we have another point in favor of this fungus being a beneficial fungus? Yeah, it's wider than three micrometers. So we got two pluses, no minuses. Now we know that um, fungi that have these little crystalline structures on the outside of the hypha, as you look along that fungal hypha, you can see little dots, little crystalline structures on the outside of that fungal hypha are crystals. An oxalate crystal is something that the fungus uses to hold and bind positively and negatively charged molecules and keep them right there on the outside of the fungus in storage for when the fungus is gonna need that. So if you see those little crystalline structures on the outside of that fungal hypha, that's another sign of a very beneficial fungus. So now we got three positive. The third, the fourth thing that we're gonna look for are crosswells, septa. And as you look along the length of that hypha, there are no septa. There are no crosswells. There's nothing that closes this cell off from the next cell. So it's not gonna be the absolute best beneficial fungus, but all the other indicators are, yes, these are good guy fungi. So you can see other um, strands of the same fungus. You, you have to remember to focus, you know, the only part that you can actually say um, is a particular diameter is the part that's in focus. Real sharp edges, clear edges. Otherwise out of focus. And so, um, you know, you've got to follow the um, fungal hypho along with um, using the fine, fine focus. Now, are there any other, there's a little tiny light brown strand. Can you find that one? So that little tiny bit, look at the fact that it's narrower diameter than the good guy that we've been looking at. But the diameter on that little bit, that snidge of fungal hypha in the corner, um, it's about a three. And so it's still a good guy fungus. It is colored. It's a lighter tan color. It's not the dark. Um, but it's still colored. It's still good diameter. Can't really tell whether it's got oxalate crystals or cross walls, but probably a good guy. So let's keep going. Right almost center field, a little bit down from center field, there is a fungal strand that's quite wide diameter, but it's clear. 
it's colorless. So the clear colorless characteristic is like, oh, that's not so good. But the wide diameter, because this guy is up around five micrometers diameter, that says, yes, it's good. So it's, it's probably kind of a neutral. You know, it's probably not a disease causer. It's probably not the best. It's not going to be really helping our plant all that much, but it's not going to be hurting. So, okay, it, you know, we've got fungal biomass. That's great. Can anyone think these causing fungus in this picture? It's, um, if you look almost center field, but go up a little bit tiny to the left, there is a very narrow, clear strand of fungal hypha. I can't, it's hard for me to get any more descriptive. So ho hopefully Leighton or Joshua are point is pointing it out for you. Um, it's a little out of focus, so it's a little hard to see, but that particular strand of fungal hypha is only two micrometers. Clear, it's colorless. There are no crystalline structures on it. This is a disease-causing fungus. The particular kind of disease-causing fungus here is Pythium. And how do I know that? Because if you take some of this material thing that grows on plates um, with that medium, so can I scare the living daylights out of you by showing you a, a plate? <gasps> Look at what happened. This is what's in your soil. Oh no, you're gonna have a horrible disease problem in this field. You're gonna lose your crop if you don't go out there and you buy, you gotta buy this particular fungicide from me so that you don't lose your crop. And so you spray the fungicide because you know, you're terrified you're gonna lose your crop. This guy is telling you that here's proof what does the fungicide kill? It doesn't kill just the pythium. It kills all your good guys as well. So you've lost the beneficial organisms that would compete with, inhibit, maybe actually even consume those disease-causing fungi. And the only thing left in that is the pythium. So, you have a massive outbreak of that, that fungal disease, and so you have this self-fulfilling prophecy. This guy told you, oh no, you gotta do something to destroy the disease causer, and instead has set you up for the disease taking you out. But then forever, you will now have to be using those toxic chemicals to try to control that problem, because you've destroyed the very thing that mother nature has in that soil compete with, inhibit, and consume the problem. So we can't be falling into that trap of giving our money away to people who want to sell you something you absolutely don't need. Maintain and improve the beneficial organisms in your soil, and you can just laugh at people who say, oh my God, you've got pythium in your soil. We've grown plants in this material for years. And we can show you the pythium. It's present, it's there, but it cannot compete. It cannot win under aerobic conditions. When there are lots of beneficial fungi around, that thing will never grow. It will never cause disease. Kill your beneficials, oh yeah, then you got a problem. Okay, so let's keep going. Is this a good fungus or not? Yeah. And you can even see cross walls in this particular picture. So nice, dark, this, it's almost a blue color in here. 
Um, and so we're looking at foods into this material so that you get the fungi doing all of their jobs. Okay, this is a root system of an onion, the microscope that you buy. It does my uh, attachment cost $1,000 for the attachment. So now you have to decide whether it's important enough for you to be able to measure mycorrhizal colonization in your root systems. So you get the, mic the um, attachment, please, that um, epifluorescent microscope attachment with the halogen bulb. Don't get the mercury vapor lamp. Okay, and if you're wondering why, you and I can discuss these things later on. Um, you want to just rinse your root in a little bit of acidified water, lay the root on the slide, and scan along the surface. So the magnification here is about four, um, about 40x total mag, and you can see all of the parts of the root system colonized, active exchange sites. With the plant, you can see the amount of the plant that is not colonized. It's just that simple. You don't have to be spending $50 per sample to send it off to somebody that has to do quite complex water. And the fungus says, eh, okay, no, no problem. Because I already have to collect those things for myself because the fungus only gets energy from the plant. It only gets sugars from the plant. That's what's being exchanged. So the fungus is going to go out and find nitrogen, bring it back, Going to find that phosphorus, bring it back, going to bring some water back with it. And at the arbuscule site, it says, okay, plant, here you go. Here's your nitrogen, phosphorus, water. Now I would like to be paid. So the plant says, here's your sugars. And then the plant says, now I need some cobalt and some calcium and some, I don't know, strontium. And so the fungus says, okay, fine. Goes out and finds it. So the two organisms, the plant and the fungus, both benefit. They both grow better. Your cannabis is going to be healthier. All cannabis require mycorrhizal colonization to be healthy. So get these mycorrhizal fungi into the root system. But please remember that this is not the only fungus, that part of the root system that it's in. It doesn't protect all of the root system. So take a look at the number of uh, roots in this picture that don't have the mycorrhizal fungus in it. Those needs still need to be protected. You still need to decompose your fungi to protect that root system since diseases and pests. You still need the, the bacteria in here as well. So simple, easy way to look at your root systems. Um, and you know, a microscope with the epifluorescent attachment never loses value. You can always sell your microscope if for some reason you decide you don't want to be doing it anymore. But it is such a useful tool. I can't imagine that if you get a microscope, you'd ever decide that you didn't need it. It makes things so much easier to know exactly what's going on and exactly what to fix to prevent any further problems. Ectomycorrhizal fungi, bit different than the uh, endo, <coughs> then the arbuscular um, myco uh, mycorrhizal fungi, because with the ectomycorrhizal fungi, the colonization is only one cell layer deep on the outside of that root system. These are pine seedlings, and um, the seed was planted. You can see where the seed was planted. 
the roots go out from that point. So the above part of the plant, pulling carbohydrates and sugars uh, through photosynthesis, feeding fungus when the pine seedlings are this young. Um, there is more fungal biomass being fed by the fungi by the plant than there is plant biomass. And that's really very typical of the mycorrhizal colonizations. You'll usually have more mycorrhizal biomass than root biomass because the fungus is acting as an extended root system for the plant. It's cheaper for the plant to grow the fungus than it is for the plant to grow roots. So nutrient collection, water collection, building structure, extremely beneficial to your plant, but please remember you still need the rest of the fruit web to have normal nutrient cycling, building good structure, holding water and so forth. Fungal hyphae, um, when you're looking in your wood chip pile, when you're looking in a compost pile, these are the kinds of strands. These are actually hundreds of strands all growing together. <clears throat> and this is capable of um, um, holding all of this group of woody materials together. So if you pick up one of these little chips, you would then be able to pull all the rest of the chips that you're seeing in this picture up as well. Looks like a wind chime or something held together by these fungal strands. These are good guy fungi. This is what you want to be seeing in your compost pile and in your wood chip pile. Moving on to the predators. So this is a flagellate. Flagellates eat bacteria. You can see a couple of little bacteria inside this flagellate's body. You can also see the little flagella coming out in front as well as one going behind. And so that's how the flagellates chase down the bacteria. They will move around through that soil, engulfing and consuming the bacteria. And you can see lots of bacteria in this picture. There's a diversity of different sizes and shapes of the bacteria, a little bit limited, not exactly the amount of diversity I would want to see. And look at the aggregates. There are no macro aggregates in here at all. So I know very first field of view, we don't have fungi. Uh-oh, this is not going to be the best of conditions for your root systems to be growing in. This is going to compact very easily. So we need to get that fungal component in here. Yep, you got the bacterial part of the food web. Lots of bacteria. We've got some uh, bacterial predators in here, but fungi. As you look through more and more and more fields in this slide that you prepared, no fungi, no fungi, no fungi. So what do you have to fix? Got to get the inoculum of the fungi back in there. So um, flagellates have an interesting hitch in their get along. So as they're moving through the soil, chasing those bacteria, because the flagella wrap around the outside of their body, it causes drag in one condition. So the um, flagella is going to be zooming along and it's going to move slightly sideways. So you see that bumble. And so when you see that bumble, oh yeah, this is a flagella. I don't have to worry about the fact because it's moving so fast, I can't really see if it's got cilia or if it's got flagella. The bumble tells you flagellate. Okay, nematodes. We identify nematodes based on their mouth parts. 
So when we're looking at this particular nematode, it just has a simple mouth. It's, uh, you know, kind of rectangular, wide opening, so that stoma can close in a little bit, and that um, rectangle can become much narrower, kind of cylindrical. So this tells us it's a bacterial feeder. When we're looking at fungal feeders, we should be seeing the spear in its mouth. So the strand that goes from upper left to lower right, that's a fungus. And the nematode that's um, in about middle of the field to the upper right, that nematode has used its spear, and you can see the spear inside its body. It's been pulled back a little bit because the nematode used that spear to puncture the cell wall of the fungus, and you can see the liquid being sucked into the nematode. And so the nematode's going to empty out that fungus and then move along that fungal hypha and puncture at another place and get another good um, juicy meal. Um, and that's how they... That's, isn't soil a nice place? All the things eating other things and the way they do it, woo! So we're looking for that spear inside the mouth. Notice that there are no knobs. There's no little round knobby things on that spear. And so the lack of, of knobs tells us this has to be a fungal feeder. Moving on, here's a predatory nematode. Right about center field, you can see the big open mouth on that nematode. And one side, the upper side, has a tooth. And so you're looking for a tooth, one or more teeth in its mouth. You can see what that nematode does. It's going to go, go up to this root feeding nematode, open its mouth, and stab that nematode with its tooth and pull that nematode into its mouth. And then it sits and chomps away on that nematode. Then it opens up its mouth and takes another bite, pulls in until that nematode has been completely consumed. And since this is a root feeder, it's its favorite foods. Most predatory nematodes that we see are going after root feeding nematodes. If there are no root feeding nematodes around, then the predatory nematode will go after whatever nematode it can catch. But it is especially good at reducing the populations of root feeding nematodes. And it's probably because root feeding nematodes have to be chock full of really good juicy plant tissue. So they're especially yummy to a predatory nematode. This is a real treat. Whereas, you know, those bacterial feeders, those fungal feeders, they're eating not so uh, wonderful food resources. So the predatory nematode is going to choose to go after the root feeder. Now, um, you know, are there other things that cue a predatory nematode to eat root-feeding nematodes? Not that we're aware of. So we have lots to learn about these interactions. But a good way to deal with a root-feeding nematode problem is to add the beneficial nematodes. So the bacterial feeders, the fungal feeders, and the predatory nematodes. We typically can take an outrageously horrible infestation of root-feeding nematodes um, down to not detectable in the course of perhaps as short as three weeks, but certainly within a single growing season, the root-feeding nematodes are non-detectable.
much more effective and this cure lasts forever until you do something stupid to kill the <laughs> beneficial organisms you have a solution to this problem that will maintain itself for as long as you care to maintain the soil you're going to have these benefits so get these organisms back into your soil and you don't have to work so hard Ooh, there's the root seeding nematode. See the big knobs? See the sphere over on the left-hand side? That big crystalline structure, it's very refract light refractive. And then those knobs, um, that's what we're looking for. The first and foremost indicator that this is a bad guy. The reason those knobs exist is that this root feeding nematode is gonna try to puncture the cell wall of the plant cell. And that cell wall is always massive. If it's a healthy plant, this root feeding nematode is not gonna be able to puncture that cell wall. If this is a plant that's stressed, that doesn't have the nutrients that it requires, oh, easy. This root feeding nematode is gonna approach that root system. It's gonna, uh, its muscles that attach on those knobs are gonna pull that spear back and then push really hard, puncturing the cell wall of that plant root cell. And then the root feeding nematode sucks out the um, juice from that plant root cell. As soon as it's done emptying out that cell, this root feeding nematode is gonna move up to the next cell, repeat exactly the same thing. And in the course of a day, this root feeding nematode can take out you know, 10, maybe 20 root cells. And so now you've got a dead spot on your roots. Open to infection by any kind of disease-causing fungus or bacteria or whatever organism wants to move in and start to harm your root even more. So it is a focus of infection. So we really want to make certain that you don't have these root feeding nematodes in your soil. And if you start to see them, you know that nature is trying to send you a story, send you an inform information, trying to tell you something, and you need to fix it. So what's the fix? Get the beneficial organisms back in here. The castle back up around that root system so this root feeding nematode cannot even detect that there's a root there. Nothing is going to come out. Nothing's going to be escaping from that root. No exudates, no information that there is a root right there, totally and completely masked by these beneficial organisms. Make sure that you've got the predatory nematodes wandering around that root system. Well, if there aren't root feeding nematodes, then you've got to have the other nematodes for the predators to feed. So that the predator, which is on guard, gets to the root feeding nematodes long before the root feeding nematodes appear at the plant roots. So, these organisms do all the work in the soil. They perform all the processes that we have to have and that we were convinced that we were gonna have to apply all these toxic chemicals in order that we could put the, these benefits into the soil. And it was a lie. We didn't know the damage that we were doing. And what really set the stage for all of that was the advent of the mechanical plow, where you can till your soil 
more than once a year. Because, of course, if you're involved in keeping that plowshare in the ground, making sure the animals are pulling, all of that process is very physically taxing. And so you don't till again and again and again and again. In, instead of tilling, you go out and you use a hoe and you take the weeds out. But if you understand biology in the soil, the weeds won't grow. The seeds don't germinate if we get that um, fungal to bacterial biomass ratio back up to where it needs to be. What you need to realize is that bacteria, the glues produced by bacteria, are going to be alkaline. Aerobic bacteria produce alkaline glues. Anaerobic bacteria produce acidic conditions. But got good aerobic soil, those bacteria are going to be producing alkaline glues. Nitrifying bacteria only produce the enzymes to convert NH4 into NO3, nitrate, ammonium converted into nitrate, under those alkaline conditions. And so all of your NH4 is going to be converted into NO3 when you're in a bacterial-dominated soil. Now, when you're trying to grow veggies, when you're trying to grow brassicas and coal and kale crops, when you're trying to grow microgreens and carrots and celery and things like that, you want mostly nitrate, just a little bit of ammonia. So you, you want that bacterial system operating. But when we get to cannabis, that needs to have a ratio of uh, more like 0.75 units of fungi for every one unit of bacteria. That means a significant amount of the nitrogen, the soluble inorganic nitrogen, is going to be present as NH4. And it's that NH4 presence that is going to prevent the germination of the weed seeds. So if you see weeds coming up in your soil, then now you, you know exactly what's wrong and you want to get back in there with good fungal foods or maybe a fungal inoculum so you get the balance right so that you're not promoting the weeds, you're promoting your cannabis. What we see with cannabis is also maybe we can influence the ratio of THC to CBD. There are different kinds of CBDs and so which kind? do you want? And there's some initial work that has been done that suggests that the ratio of fungi to bacteria influences or maybe even controls the balance of those kinds of compounds in your cannabis. Now, I think some more recent data suggests that different species, different cultivars of cannabis are going to be affected to a greater or lesser amount based on what that fungal to bacterial biomass ratio is. So we need to know cultivar by cultivar, you know, species by species, exactly what is the proper balance of fungi to bacteria in your soil to get shifts and changes in the chemicals that are present in your buds, present in your product. So early days on some of this, very clear. That in a work in strawberry or in other crops, 
that the absorption of fungi bacteria is strongly influencing cytomoid concentration. It strongly influences um, the uh, terpenes and the tannins. So it's something clearly that we need to pay attention to, but a lot more research needs to be done to figure out, you know, type, the different types of cannabis, exactly what the proper ratio of fungi bacteria is use the product that you want. So, how far down do we go? I touched on this just a little bit before. Um, how do we get the roots growing down as far as they can grow? We've got to get rid of compaction. This is from a soil where um, we made certain to go in and for the last time ever, we tilled the soil, we tilled the compost into that soil. So we knew we had the biology down deep into that soil, that the soil was on have the right biology into it, in it, down to about the four feet. We then planted, so this is Hendricus and I were doing this research. Um, Hendricus on, on planted the seed uh, on July 15th, and you know, when you talk to the golf course people or you talk to uh, agronomists, they say all oh, the root systems on this grass only goes down uh, four to six inches. Right. Because normally the compaction that four to six inches. If you break up that compaction by tilling and making sure maybe the inoculum of the organisms back into that soil where the structure is built, when you plant the seeds and those seeds start growing and the roots start growing down, how deep can those roots grow? So we harvested this by pushing in a big PVC pipe pulling everything in that piece of PVC pipe up out of the soil, um, taking the PVC pipe off, and then rinsing that um, so that uh, column of soil. So what you see here are the root systems. This is all roots, and it came from a single seed of that grass. Harvested on November 6th, so what is that, three and a half months? after this was planted, dug it up, and look at how far down the root system are. Hendricus is a six and a few inches tall person, and he's holding that um, interface of the above ground from the below ground just a little bit above his waist, and those root systems that are tucked in the ground. So this is at least four and a half feet deep in three months. Would you have to water your lawn if you had root systems growing in the With time, this root system will get even deeper. So we have people that are bringing us evidence that root systems of rock grass like this can grow down 25 feet. Do you have to worry about nutrients for your plant? Do you have to worry about water in the summertime? Absolutely not. And this lawn stays beautiful, bright green through the worst droughts. So no weeds, no diseases. This is what we need to be doing with our plants is getting those root systems down. Think about what it means for um, growing cannabis in a pot. We need to have much deeper pots in order to allow that cannabis to grow in a good, healthy fashion and develop a flavor in the case you want. 
This is her work that was done by the USDA back around the turn of the century with um, the Pavilion Conservation Conservation Research Institute, which today is now the NRCS of the USDA, the Natural Resource Conservation Service of the USDA. In this project, they went out to the Great Plains of the United States and dug pits, so we these different um, plants, uh, essentially a separate pit. So they dug down 40 feet into the ground. They then brought a fire truck out and washed that surface so they could actually see the root systems, just very similar to what we did in this kind of picture. Um, so you could see the, the um, root systems. They then put glass plating, 40 feet deep uh, glass plating, up against the surface, tracing paper, and traced the root systems by hand. The scale on the left-hand side, both at both the right and left-hand side, goes down 25 feet. The most productive grasses are the ones that have their root systems down at 25 feet. Less productive, the root systems are only going maybe 15 feet, 10 feet. You can tell those kinds of grasses that most um, pasture people would consider weeds by the fact that their roots don't go down very far. So look at the third plant over from the right. See how those root systems just don't go down? That's a typical characteristic of weeds. Weeds don't invest energy at all into their root systems. Weeds are going to put what little roots they can, suck all the nutrients out, suck all the water out, produce seed. That's the point and purpose of a weed. If other plants, have a longer term strategy. They typically have a much longer life cycle. They may be perennial in fact. So most of the plant most of these plants that have roots are the more beneficial. Where do you see cheatgrass in this picture? Can you pick out the most horrific weed in the western part of the United States that any pasture person and it does crazy if that weed shows up in their pasture because it's bad stuff. Can you find it? Look way over to the left-hand side, the very first plant on the left-hand side. That's cheatgrass, Romans pecorum. It only puts the root systems down maybe two, three inches into the soil. It may look beautiful green in the springtime and you've got a wonderful pasture, but this plant puts all of its effort into producing seed. And if you've ever walked through a patch of cheatgrass, you know just how nasty that seed is. It cuts you. If you've got any kind of bare skin, out, you can't walk through that area. So production of a lot of seed blows out. We have to change the conditions in that dirt and convert it back into soil. So this is probably um, about the last second. I'm, I'm, I'm probably just about finished with my time, right? Absolutely. time. Do I have time to finish this one talk with this one thing? Yeah. Okay. So we're looking at succession and what actually drives succession. Probably all of you know that you know Mother Nature starts out with some horrible disturbance, a flood, um, you know, landslides, a, a fire, where you're down to bare soil. And what grows in bare soil is going to be strictly bacteria. 
photosynthetic bacteria are typically the first things that come in. So I totally get their immune system. The only thing that can start to grow in that system is weeds, weedy species that don't put a lot of effort into their root system, produce lots of seeds, but it eats the surface of that soil to hover. So we protect the mother nature wants to protect the surface of that soil for erosion is stopped, loss is going to be but they are not highly productive in terms of developing a food web that's going to grow the later successional species back. So at least we're started. At least now there is some cellulose coming into the system, some fungal foods, which means now we get that fungal compound. But if we look at the down at the bottom of the page, under that stage of succession, we can see that we've got 100 micrograms of bacteria, but only 10 micrograms of fungi. Very bacterial dominated, but at least starting to select against some of the weedier species. So keep building that fungal complement, and sooner or later, you're going to see a shift in the plant species that can urinate and start to grow. Some of those earlier successional grasses, some of the forbs, the herbs can start to survive. Vegetables are what are going to grow in that system where we've got 500 micrograms of bacteria and 50 micrograms of fungi. Fungal bacteria ratio of 0.5. But of course, more of these plants have higher amounts of cellulose in them, fungal foods, lignans as well, that's much more of fungal food. So starting to develop more fungal biomass. When we get to cannabis, it's right at that split between the second block of soil there, the 500 to 250, and the equal biomass of fungi to bacteria, 600 to 600. So some of our cultivars and cannabis grow very well, and that 0.75 to 0.8, get a lot of THC out of those particularly. Now as we keep um, improving that fungal biomass, other kinds of cannabis grow even better where we have more of an equal biomass to up to where we have two, maybe three times more fungal than bacterial. And what we notice is that there's print or is more cannabinoid being produced under those fungal dominated conditions. Typically this plantation where we want from highly productive grassland row crops at one to one ratio, fungi bacteria that's 100 to 100. You see down at the bottom. And as we start going to fungal dominated soils, we're starting to grow shrubs on the vines. And deciduous trees, um, ratio of 800 micrograms of fungi to 500 micrograms of bacteria. On into the old growth forest, um, minimum amount, 7,000 micrograms of fungi to 700 micrograms of bacteria. The most productive ecosystems on this planet old growth, true old growth forest, um, 70,000 micrograms of fungi to 700 micrograms of bacteria. Three quarters of the weight of a certain amount of your soil, three quarters of the percent of that, that soil is going to be fungal tissue. So think about the USDA, and they, the USDA says, Biology doesn't occupy more than 5% of the volume of the soil. 
what soil are they looking at to come up with that massively low number? They are only focusing on highly disturbed, very till soils. You can call it soil when you're only looking at 5% of the volume of um, your unit of um, soil is virus. No, that's dirt. Call it what it is. We've got to get the biology back into that soil. We've got to get half of the weight of a volume of your soil being fungal biomass, or at the very least being biological. So this shift from nitrate, not lots of nitrate, to almost strictly ammonia when we get to the most effective of conditions. Where does cannabis grow in this system? Right there in the middle. We want equal amounts of nitrate and ammonia, and we get rid of the weed factor to select and um, determine what the actual composition of your weather will be, of your product. So, summarize the, um, this whole movement from through succession, from bare soil up to conifer. Well then, you know, why isn't everything in old growth forest? If this is what nature is trying to do, how, why hasn't she been successful? Because, <laughs> fire, floods, tillage, volcanoes. These are all disturbances that are going to move things backwards in the process of succession, and of course nature starts to rebuild. And then another disturbance happens, and then you start to rebuild, and another, you know, so how many times has the soil in your agricultural fields been old growth forest? How often has it been bare soil? So trying to understand a little bit of that history of your soil over the last 10 years um, is really necessary. You want to have some idea of what's been happening and therefore why you've got organisms in the soil and what do you need to add to bring that soil to a really healthy condition for your plants. So, do we have time for a question and answer? I would go on to compaction if we don't have any questions. Yeah, let's but do some questions. We got some some questions about any of this right now. Yeah. Thanks, sir. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ingham, uh, for your presentation. Uh, my question is one, are you in favor of um, cultured uh, mycorrhizal fungi or bacterial inoculants? And two, what is the most efficient way to build that castle wall around the rhizosphere as before going to plant, um, is that gathering old growth forest soil, making a compost tea? Is that from my compost pile? Is it a mixture thereof? Anaerobic plant fermentation? What, in your experience, is the best way to build that initial uh, castle wall? Yeah, um, interesting questions. Thank you. Um, so, the first question is um, I'm more in favor of um, mycorrhizal inocula or microbial inocula. Um, we first of all want to find out what you're missing in your soil. Um, if, if your bacteria are already there, why enhance more bacteria? Uh, maybe if you're lacking diversity, okay, when you would think about maybe um, buying something that has a bacterial inoculum in it, 
So if you want to be a little careful about the bacterial inocula, um, do you already have them in your soil? Um, are these really going to be benefiting the plant you want to grow? Um, look at how many different species of bacteria are actually present in the, in the bacterial inocula available on the market. Uh, ooh, ah, great. Um, how many species of bacteria should there be in good healthy soil? 75,000. And so you probably have way more than two bacterial species in your, even in your dirt, you probably have quite a few bacteria. So enhancing that bacterial inoculum is like, what are you gaining? Well, if things are really, really bad in your soil, in your dirt, then yes, a bacterial inoculum would be useful. But why not go after some really well-made compost? Um, you want to be looking at any compost that you're considering buying, um, using it as an inoculum. You want to take a look at it through the microscope so you know what's in there. And is it worth your time to be messing around with that material? Um, there are a lot of soil food web advisors in the world these days, and they all make good compost. Compost containing all the biology that you would want to be inoculating back into any of your agricultural systems. You can help you shift more fungal, more bacterial, do you need more protozoa, do you need more nematodes? You can help with that. So find your local soil food web advisor, the consultant, and um, you know get working with them. Um, anybody who wants to know where their closest uh, consultant might be, uh, get a hold of us at you know, soilfoodweb.com. Uh, and we maintain lists of people. We do have some of the people who have graduated from the program are on the website. We have other people that are very close to graduating, so we want to get you a hold of those. Because then they would make an inoculum of really good compost for you. Um, you don't need much. You, know, you need, need maybe five or ten pounds of really good um, compost to make 500 gallons of compost tea. You're multiplying the organisms during that 24-hour tea brew. Um, you can shift for more bacterial and more fungal, depending on the food resources that you would be putting into the system. So that's a much better inoculum. The question included, well, should I go out to an old-growth forest and take an inoculum from an old-growth forest? The problem is, you could be bringing diseases and pests back with you. You go out to a forest system, yep, it's an old-growth forest, it should be pretty healthy, but what if you pick the one spot that a tree died last fall from fungal diseases? Mm, yeah, this is not actually a healthy part of this old growth forest. So many of our old growth forests, for example, in California, I really don't know anywhere in California where the old growth forests are healthy. They're all under stress because of all the air contaminants, because of the way we treat um, any of our land. We are doing really idiotic things. We're um, destroying water movement, we're destroying the flow, because every once in a while we get annoyed by this stream leaving its banks and uh, 
about flooding some of the houses that are right along the creek. We've turned the whole bottom of that creek into concrete. And now it's just a concrete culvert. Well, how do you recover water table if you've just put your creek into a concrete bunker? You're not going to have the water moving out back into your soils as it should be doing around that creek in the middle of the summertime. So it's just harmed all of the ecosystems all along that channel, and they're not getting water replenishment. We've got to take the concrete out of our streams and put it back into a normal condition. LA drives me crazy. I can't even drive through that city without just kind of freaking out with all the, uh, do we realize what we're doing? Well, no, we don't. Um, and people lie to us all the time because they want to make money because we're captain these corners. So can I ask a question? Um, assuming I know how to use a microscope and I can identify the proper organ microorganisms, and I don't want to go out and talk to a soil blue-up consultant because maybe there's not one in my area. And I want to do this on my own and go out and collect. Um, can you talk about your method and collection and maybe where places are to do that and how you would think about that? Yeah, you, you really want to, if you go out and collect a, a handful, you go into an old oak forest, brush away organic matter, and you see those nice white strands on the surface of the soil. You can take, you know, a couple of teaspoons from that. You've got the inoculum that you need. Put that material into a plastic bag. You don't seal it all the way. You don't want those organisms to use up the oxygen in that plastic bag while you're carting that home. But once you get that back, you're going to want to add that inoculum of those really beneficial organisms and maybe a couple of bad guys in there. You want to mix that into your compost pile at the beginning of the composting process. Because you want either the temperature that's going to be developed in a thermal pile or in a worm bin, you want that material to either pass through the digestive system of the worm or contact the outside layer of the worm. Either any one of those three things will get rid of the pathogens, the pests, the parasites, the problem organisms, the weed seeds are going to be removed. They either contact with that earthworm or thermal um, temperature developed in the thermal pile. If you're afraid of weed seeds in the worm bin, you're going to have to do the thermal thing first and, and then go through the worms. So we'll deal with all the problem organisms through that composting process. Plus, we will then enhance all of those beneficial organisms that were present in that material. They should be growing in your pile now. So once that thermal pile comes back down to ambient temperature, um, you can use that material to make your teas, to make your compost, uh, make your uh, extracts, um, put the compost out. Maybe for the last time ever, you will till the compost into the soil, especially if you have compaction layers in that soil. I don't know if the slide is still showing, but there's a compaction layer for you. Um, either in a landscape or in an agricultural system, how far down is that compaction layer? Well, dig a, dig a hole, and you find that, that compaction. And so how far down do you have to kill that compost in, break up that compaction? So, um, 
uh, and work on the National Organic Standards Board to change their definition of what the compost is. Um, but when we're doing this work, we develop, there is a microarthropod community and therefore a macroarthropod community that's going to develop pretty rapidly um, in our greenhouse uh, conditions. And using that really good compost, we're getting the microarthropod back in New York systems, and that will hopefully attract the, the higher level predators. Um, not the birds, you know, too large for greenhouse situations, but certainly the macro arthropods can be coming along. It's when you start seeing spiders, we like spiders, in all of the windowsills on the floor um, on the underside of your tables. Um, don't be killing them. Um, yes, if they're like those spiders, they're gray occluses, but if you don't want them, Hang around, but um, the way you prevent those uh, poisonous spiders from coming into your face is to make sure you've got the beneficial spiders. So wolf spiders, um, things like that, are not going to harm you. Harvesters are not going to harm you. So if you see a few of those in your greenhouse, just be happy they're there because they're keeping all the rest of the food web below them happy. So did, did, that, did I answer that question? I, I had a hard time hearing the yes, first part. No, I think you got it. And I was just going to say, I think a lot of the indoor systems, to, to be regenerative in them, we're going to have to do in compost outside the building and, and creating this stuff and bringing it into the building. It just can't regenerate inside the warehouse, unfortunately. Some things will, but this is it's going to be part of the practice. And also you say building birdhouses and habitat around your facility and building up the environment around your facility, pollinators, all the things. Um, so we're, we're going to get into a lot of this stuff, you guys. We all have experience, uh, most of the speakers, decades of experience growing indoors, outdoors, um, greenhouses. So let's see another question. You showed a diagram of uh, the amounts of bacteria and fungi in certain systems uh, by weight. I was wondering how we would go about measuring that in our own system. Um, we're going to do that using the microscope. So um, um, we're, me we're measuring the length and the width of the fungi. We're counting numbers of bacteria. We know the conversion factors to convert numbers or biomass um, into uh, weight. So we get a biomass of the fungi, the biomass of the bacteria. Because you, you can't compare a single bacterium with a single fungal hypha. The largest organism on this planet is a single fungus. And uh, right now the winner of the um, award for being the biggest organism on the planet uh, belongs to a fungus that is growing in Olympic Peninsula in the old growth cedar forest. And uh, Paul Stamets is the person who monitors and who's crackled that um, So that's a single fungal individual. Compare it with a single bacterium. Um, you can't be can't comparing numbers. So you have to compete, come, uh, change. You have to measure biomass of the fungi and the biomass of the bacteria with this weight. And so that all of our comparisons are on a weight basis, comparing weight of the biomass of the fungi with the biomass of the bacteria. 
And did you catch the ratios? You know, we want to be for cannabis above fifteen to one and two at thirty to one. Yeah. Anybody else? Can you explain again the difference between a, a compost tea and a compost extract? A compost extract is just the first part of making a compost tea. So you can take your compost and just use movement of water through that compost to extract the organisms off the surfaces of the compost and into the water. With a tea, we would then continue a 24-hour brew, and we would have put foods into the water before we added compost. We would add additional foods to grow whatever organism we feel needs to be enhanced. So we would put in fungal foods if we need to enhance fungal growth during that 24-hour period. With uh, bacteria, we might, under very rare conditions, want to improve the bacterial community, so we would put bacterial foods into the tea. It's just that most of the time, bacteria are not the missing organism. It's fungus, or protozoa, or nematodes that are the missing organisms. So we would uh, put in some, uh, an additional inoculum of protozoa during the tea brew to bring the protozoan numbers up. Or maybe we would put an inoculum of the nematodes extracted from really good and healthy compost or soil um, to enhance, increase the number of nematodes going out into um, your property. What are uh, the fungal foods and bacterial foods we can add to boost those at the beginning of the tea brew? Yeah, so fungal foods need to be fairly wide seed in ratio materials. Um, oils, for example, are very good fungal foods. So um, fish hydrolysates, where they have not removed any of the oils, and you will probably have to be very persistent in talking to the person selling you a fish hydrolysate to make certain that they haven't heated that fish hydrolysate and taken off the really expensive oils. Um, of course, all those oils are the things that are really the fungal foods. So you want all of those um, good oils in that fish hydrolysate. Uh, humic acids are another good one. When you are making a compost, the actions of the bacteria and the fungal acids on monopodes are um, causing condensation of a lot of the organic material in that soluble. Um, organic material in your compost, and they're building those honey-colored compounds that we see in the aggregates. The really nice, rich, dark brown, 70% cocoa chocolate color that we see in the macro aggregates. So humic acids are being built by microorganisms in your compost. If you take um, a container like a sieve, um, you know, a you know, where you, for a pasta, um, you move the water from your pasta, uh, put cheesecloth on the inside of that sieve, and then put your compost. Passively run water through that compost. Don't shake, don't mix. Just let the water move through that layer of compost. 
collect what comes out the bottom of that sieve. You can see the color of it. If it's just honey color, all you've got are the fulvic acids. If it's nice, rich, dark brown, 70% cocoa color, you've got the humic acids. And that is an excellent fungal food. And a lot of people will then say, well, but I'm extracting that humic acid from the compost. Now I'm going to add that humic acid to, to the compost. Yeah, you're increasing the concentration of that specific fungal food. You, of course, are going to use fresh compost put into your um, tea brewer, and then you'll add the humic acid that you took from another, a different portion of compost. You can go ahead and put the solid material left in your sieve back into the compost pile. More organisms start growing, and they just start making more humic acid for you. Um, a lot of people will go out and buy commercially produced humic acid, but that is an extract, a chemical extract from soft brown coal, lignite. And that process of extracting using really strong acids and really strong bases um, changes the composition of that humic acid. And it might take as long as uh, six weeks to six months for the microorganisms to be able to utilize that chemically altered humic acid, humic and fulvic acid material. And of course, if you put that into a tea brewer where you're brewing for 24 hours, that commercially extracted leonardite-based humic acid is going to do nothing to improve the fungal component in your tea brew. So, you know, food resources, other fungal food resources would be things like steel ground oats. Anything that they left the seed coat on when they ground it up um, is going to be good fungal foods. The germ inside of that seed is food that get those fungi that start growing really fast and start to utilize that seed coat material is what really selects for that fungal growth. So putting ground grain material, just making sure that it was steel on ground or ground with the seed coat on it. They don't go and remove that seed coat first. Um, when we're trying to really get this biology down into the root system, I mentioned injection. But another way to do it is to take your seed and spritz a good compost tea onto the surface of the seed or immerse your seed into um, a compost tea for a few minutes. Pull your seed out, let them dry, and um, the organisms that get into the cracks and crevices, the seed coat of your actual seed material, uh, will typically be able to hang out and wait somewhere around two to three weeks before you plant it. You're still going to get the benefit of those improved organisms on that seed. Um, if when you're planting, like when, with your planter, if the first time going down into the soil, right after you open the furrow, um, then with the first time, you deliver a compost extract to the soil, and then the next time drops your seed on top of that compost extract enhanced soil. That usually works really well at getting those root systems immediately colonized, 
and add, if you're using microwaves and fun dye, you absolutely want to be doing the addition of the spores of mycorrhizal fungi to the seed or to the soil right below the seed. If you're dealing with a seed that has been treated with fungicide or other pesticides, you have to be putting the extract into the ground before the seed goes on top of it. The pesticides they put onto that seed are going to kill anything that you apply to the surface of the seed. And it may well kill um, organisms in the one to two micrometer um, area below the seed or around the seed. So you want that extract to soak into the ground. So when the roots germinate, when the seed germinates and the roots start growing down, they will get to that biologically enhanced soil. We had a question on chat, and I think I can answer it about uh, what microscopes you recommend. And uh, I think the answer is go to the Soil Food Web website, and there are two. You talked about it earlier, but there are two microscopes that you recommend uh, on yeah. that website. Yeah. So another question, I think. In the beard, yeah, you got it, bro. No, you. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Dr. Uh, I had one question. Uh, at the start of your talk, you said something about um, anaerobic ferments being a pesticide and stripping the, the coating off of the fine roots. Uh, I just wanted some context on that um, versus uh, historical treatment of anaerobic compost tea. That seems to be really successful, but I'm trying to um, rectify those two. Thank you. I, I need to have somebody repeat that because you talk so fast and there's so he much. Asked, um, he was asking about um, using anaerobic teas and earlier on in, in the talk, you talked about applying anaerobic teas in, as a pesticide and yeah. coming from the experience of using anaerobic teas and, and seeing successful results in them, he's trying to uh, make sense of this. Yeah, um, the fermented teas um, grow anaerobic organisms. And those anaerobic organisms produce a number of toxic chemicals. Uh, they produce a, a number of organic acids that have a pH down around two. Um, so if you measure the pH on a fermented tea, typically the pH is gonna be around four to 4.5. They're not really beneficial to the growth of our plants, but this could be very instrumental in getting rid of diseases. So as long as you're not overwhelming the system with those fermented yeast, we may be essentially putting on a pesticide. You kill some of the diseases that are in your dirt, um, and hopefully not to the point where you've absolutely um, put on some too toxic a level, but enough to kill the disease but not kill the plant. But really, we want to be dealing with that disease by having beneficial organisms doing all these other beneficial things for us, so you get much improved production. But it's a step that you can take, especially when you're first starting, and you know you probably have some disease-causing organisms. Why not try to reduce those disease-causing organisms, but then come back in and inoculate with a really good set of biology. Um, when we're looking at fermented materials, um, some of the other things that are produced only under anaerobic conditions, of course, are alcohols. And those are pretty good pesticides. Those kill a lot of the disease-causing organisms or inhibit their germination. Um, so 
you can see a, a growth benefit to your plants, especially if you're growing dirt, not in soil. Um, I would probably encourage you not to use fermented peas at all if you're if you find to Peru the work of getting a really good compost and you know you've got really good set of benefits for organisms. Because with the fermented pea, you're going to be killing those organisms, uh, the good along with the bad. So um, there's uh, when we're at ferment tea, we're going to be losing all of the soluble nitrogen in that tea because those organisms typically are going to be blowing off your nitrogen as ammonia. Um, and tree. They're going to be blowing off your phosphorus, it's phosphorus gas. They're going to be blowing off your sulfur, hydrogen sulfide. Exception to that fermentation problem is if you are loading your fermented tea up with a lot of lactobacillus. Lactobacillus is kind of a different story. They only produce organic acids, they don't um, volatilize your um, soluble inorganic nutrients, so not so much of a problem. Um, so make sure with the fermented tea that you're actually adding lactobacillus and you're not allowing just any old anaerobic sets of organisms to grow in that fermented tea. So you know, things like kombucha or kimchi, um, those are made with a specific inoculum of lactobacillus. Well, a lot less detrimental other than pH is typically down around 4, 4.5, and you could be causing harm to your beneficial microorganisms if they're present. If they're not present, go for the fermented needs. Yes, you probably it would be a good idea um, to always do that if you're not eating the soil. But as soon as you get the beneficial organisms and you can grow those beneficial organisms, stop with the fermented teas because they are detrimental to our good guys. We can hit that more too tomorrow, Josh and Kelly, when they talk. I know they do a lot of ferments, so it would be cool to have them give their perspective. You, sir. Yeah. Uh, earlier you were talking about the ciliates that were like uh, not beneficial organisms. They survived under six parts per million of oxygen. You said. I was wondering if there's a range of oxygen in soil that is, you know, ideal for beneficial organisms, and if there's a practical way to test your dissolved oxygen in your soil, say throughout the season, to just ensure that you've got that ideal range for healthy microbiology to thrive. Yeah. So the cutoff between aerobic and anaerobic is um, six parts per million oxygen. And uh, I always like to measure the absolute concentration of either oxygen or carbon dioxide. They're kind of flip sides of the same coin. As oxygen is used up, CO2 is produced. So which one is easier to measure? CO2 is way easier to measure. You don't have as many problems with it. Um, the probes for measuring CO2 in your soil um, or in your compost, uh, much less expensive as compared to the oxygen probes. So I would encourage you to go after a CO2 probe. Um, if you go to any any one of the you know like the bioags, the groups you know, of uh, companies that you know, um, pipe labs, 
things like that. They have um, materials for making compost. We have um, CO2 probes for you. Just remember that the color indicator in the CO2 probe um, only contained about 100 measurements, and then you have to change the liquid inside of the probe, or that it's just all white all the time. And you uh, cannot detect CO2 or oxygen. So those are the simple ones. Usually you have a long pipe that comes with the probe. You push the pipe into the ground, and then you actually have to apply a suction to pull the soil atmosphere past your detector. So that's how compost or soils would be measured. In um, liquid, you would typically just take your center off and drop the liquid into your compost tea or your extract. You want an oxygen concentration Absolutely, you want it above six parts per million oxygen. Um, even better if you can get it up to eight. Um, for most of our aerobic organisms, they're really happy in the range between eight and ten parts per million oxygen. Uh, max oxygen concentration at sea level on a cold day at a freezing temperature is 16 parts per million. So depending on your elevation and the temperature outside, um, you can't get more oxygen into the air, but you know we, we don't want to, we are not going to be growing good at the organisms at uh, minus 32 degrees, um, which is where you can get higher levels of oxygen concentration. Uh, so you so, said that those CO2 uh, meters are a little bit more affordable and stuff. So did you have like an ideal level of CO2 that you're looking for when you're testing for CO2 levels? Yep, so the flip side would be um, typically with um, the CO2 probes, they're going to be looking at percent carbon dioxide acids. But anything below 3% is going to be very aerobic conditions. You can probably still be okay. You're in that uh, range between 6 to 8 parts per million oxygen. And you're looking at something like uh, 3 to 6% um, CO2. Notice that I've, I've switched um, units here. Uh, CO2 is usually measured as percent carbon dioxide or percent carbon dioxide plus other gases in the atmosphere. So you're, again, pulling a sample past your probe and you're measuring the percent of oxygen, of CO2, and it's um, the percentage comes from the fact that the percent of CO2 plus oxygen, O2, should equal 100%. So as you use up your oxygen and it's converted to CO2, your CO2 value is going to rise. And you want less than 3% CO2 for really good growth of your um, aerobic organisms, but it can get up to maybe 6% and it's still okay. It's when you start approaching eight to nine percent CO two, you're going into you're dropping into anaerobic conditions. Um, I'm just going to add. This is one reason that growing a living soil in pots is very challenging. I won't say it's impossible because it's not, but it's very very challenging to get the moisture level right to keep the right guys playing. So. Recommendation yeah, is, big, is, is big beds if you, if you can indoors. And Lane will talk a bit about that. Go ahead, Lane. 
And then don't overwater. Um, I mean, we're just so tuned as human beings to, oh, the, the leaves are drooping a little bit. The plant looks like it's you know, a little bit dry. And so you add more water and you go by the next time and wow, it's still looking a little bit droopy. I'll add more water. You're doing exactly the wrong thing. Because those droopy leaves, that unhappy attitude of the plant, is probably telling you that the uh, water uh, is waterlogged. The, the soil is waterlogged. It's going anaerobic. Well, oxygen does not move through water very rapidly at all. So you have to not let that instinct of, oh, it's not looking real happy, I'll add more water. Don't do it! Okay, one more, sir. Thank you. Um, for a soil compaction that's six inches or a foot down, it sounded like the best thing to do was to till and then to add uh, compost tea to add biology back to the soil. For your example that you showed where the soil compaction level was at six or eight feet down, what can you do to eliminate that compaction and to uh, get life back as well? Yeah, the easiest thing to do for a very deep compaction layer is to get an injector. And so you want an injector rod that can go down a good four feet. Um, especially if you've already gotten good structure in the upper layers of the soil, you know, you have no compaction layer in that top four to six feet, then you can get a really long metal pipe um, and just screw it into your injector on the end of that one. And then you push that all the way into the soil. You're going to want to push down and hope, excuse me, hopefully through the compaction layer. So you're injecting that really good biology through that whole compaction layer up all the way through your soil. Hopefully then, by the time your roots actually get down to that compaction layer at you know, six feet or, or deeper, the biology will have had the chance to break that all up so that your roots will be able to grow down possibly can. Um, he's asking how how to inject. Do we do the inject every three feet, every two feet, every six feet? Like how how are we applying it in this scenario? Is that correct? Yeah. What we've um, seen is that um, if you're injecting into the soil pretty much at the maximum pressure for releasing, um, you probably can go every ten feet uh, because. The biology is being pushed out sideways, and the bio under that amount of pressure, the biology is going to be moving into all the cracks and crevices that that water can open up for it, in all directions as well as down. And so what we see with this injection, the diameter goes out about five feet. And so if you put another um, injection hole 10 feet away, then they're going to overlap um, um, amount of distance that that water is going to move sideways is going to overlap with the next injection that you do. And then, of course, the organisms keep growing through the whole remaining part of growing season. So you're hopefully also going to be coming in with a compost tea spray to cover the above ground part of the plant. And when you're applying a spray to the foliage, you are also going to be dropping, dripping, misting your soil surface as well. 
and then hopefully it will be watering or it will rain so that biology will be able to move down deeper into the soil. And this is actually stuff that is Layton's specialty. He's, he's designing really brilliant brewers and pliers and shelf-stable um, compost. So I'm going to let him talk a little bit more about that. But Elaine, I just wanted to say I didn't get to introduce you proper. Thank you so much for all the work you've done over all the years. You've definitely changed my life. And um, the, the, the fact is it ripples. You know, you, the, I'm able to grow healthier plants. We're, we're on stage talking about this. So really, truly thank you for the work you've done.